Remember the first time you saw a race car on an open trailer? Maybe it was full of dirt, tire marks, and other battle scars. You wondered where it had been, and more importantly, where it was going next. Every open trailer has a story, and we're here to tell it. Welcome to the Open Trailer Podcast. Hey there, it's Andy Austin, and this is stage number two of my chat with Bruce Elder. At this point, Bruce steps out from behind the wheel and jumps behind the microphone. It's here that he becomes as much, if not even more, influential than he was in his driving days. And since he's had perspective on both, I asked him what makes a great racer and what makes a great race announcer. Also, he's been there, so where does he see short track racing in 10 years? I think you'll be surprised by his answer. Now, this podcast directly benefits the Maine Vintage Race Car Association, and VRCA preserves the history of racing here in the state of Maine. We'd love for you to become a member. You can do so for just less than $2 a month. Go to mainevintagerace.org. Sign up and become a member today. You can also get a family membership as well as a multi-year membership membership is the lifeblood of what we do so we appreciate your support you can also help this podcast by going to patreon.com slash open trailer podcast now the money raised will go directly into the production and equipment to make it possible i consider it an online tip jar love doing the podcast and really really appreciate the kind words and support again that is patreon.com slash open trailer podcast Have you ever had a day off? <laughs> yeah. No. Sundays. Sun- <laughs> Sundays. Sundays. <laughs> Lord's Day. Uh, well, you bring that up too. Um, how much does your faith play a role in in how you carried yourself as a? Ra- Have you always been a man of faith? I, I was fortunate, yeah, to grow up. Mm. My mother was amazing. She mm. was uh, a solid Christian woman that uh, just uh, uh, set an example. Mm. That was that was just incredible. Um, she, uh, you know, we went to church every, every whether we wanted to or not. You know, the kids went to church, and uh, so yeah, it, it has always been, I guess, one of those pivotal things in my life that probably controlled my behavior to quite an extent. Mm. Uh, maybe. Maybe not as much as it should have at times, right. you know. You could have spun the guy out and got a second championship well. <laughs> or something, you know. <laughs> Only got one morning in all those years. Are so. you serious? <laughs> Do you still have it, like, pinned to the wall no, or something? No. Um, it certainly has been a, 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 a aspect of my life that has been at the core mm. of uh, how I believe one should live, or at least mm-hmm. how I, I felt I should live, and... Uh, so it, it's been a, a very strong influence in my life. A couple other things, you know, I, I want to hit on too. Um, 1977, you wrap up your driving career and you just three seconds of listening to your voice. I think you're almost more famous for what you did behind the mic than maybe you did behind the wheel, if not just equally as famous. Uh, how quickly did you make that transition from driving to race announcing? Well, as you know, I did the trackside interviews for... Uh, I think probably three years or so before being asked to announce. And what years were this? What were these? Well, I think it was like uh, the early 80s. I'd say 80, 80, 81, and 82. 
uh, and those were the years that I was president of the Racing Association. And there might have been a year prior to that. I think those were probably the, the three years. And I'm not sure if it was right after that that I was asked to transition to announce. And again, I guess it was just kind of a natural fit for me because I was I, I had the advantage of having been there so many years. I knew most of the drivers and owners, and they knew me. And uh, I guess a lot of the fans probably knew me because I'd been doing the track side before going to the, to the booth. Who suggested that you do this? Um, I think it might have been Andy Cusack. Really? And Andy has to be, what, 15 at this time? I mean, he's a young guy. Yeah, he, I mean, was, he was fairly young. I was trying to think. Uh, I guess the track side must have been, it was probably maybe either Bob or Phil Libby hmm. prior to that. So uh, what were some of the best moments of that position uh, as a trackside announcer? What were some of the more memorable uh, interviews that you did? Oh, wow, just so many. Uh, and the friendships that developed out of that because um, not only during those years were we uh, having uh, – quite a full schedule like 27 race meets for instance in a in a year mm. a lot of double weekends came to a point where we were also having a lot of bush north races having some modified race some open races and uh that got me you know more and more interested in tour racing so i'd mm. go to thompson and and stafford to do homework on those people so that I'd hopefully be knowledgeable to talk about them when they'd come to Beach Ridge. And with that, I developed some real close friendships with those people. Dave Dion's a good example. He and I became very close. Some of the others, Bob Garbarino, who owned the famous... Mystic Missile. Mystic Missile, yes. you know. And some of the other uh, competitors. And then uh, when the pastor came along and, and you, you came on to announce Beach Ridge... Mm. Uh, I kind of went to the pastor for a while and got to uh, get close with Russ Dowd, the, the announcer for years at Thompson, got to do a race with uh, John Roberts. Oh, wow. Um, uh, it, was quite a, it was quite a thing to, to be called. After I'd done the pastor race at uh, uh, Thompson one year, Russ Dowd called me and asked me if I would do the Bush North race there and, and with the pastor there. We did that. And John Roberts is just a tremendous guy. I had never met him before, but it was it was like you meet someone, it's like you've known him a long time. Mm. And the interesting thing, uh, that particular race, uh, Jimmy Spencer was in a car and Kenny Wallace. Uh, Scott Mulkern provided for one of them. And, it's going to be what, uh, 06, 07? It was either 06 or 07. Mm. Was, those were the two years that I did, you know, pastoral racing. Mm. Anyway... Uh, the interesting thing was Cassius Clark beat them both. <laughs> and uh, Cassius won the race, and uh, I think Jimmy Spencer was second and Kenny Wallace third or something like that. Mm. And uh, they were so impressed with Cassius, and because I was, and it was, and that's where I met uh, Joe Koss. Oh, right. And uh, when you, I came back later on, and you, you were out of state, and I filled in, and Joe was in in uh, Maine for some summer camp work. He ended up coming on with me, and we developed quite a friendship. So uh, Joe has become a real close friend, his wife, and so on. Stayed at our house a few times. So wow, those relationships I think are just so valuable. You know, so you do the pastor, 
And also in the early 2000s comes the main Vintage Race Car Association, which you are one of the founders. Uh, how did this thing that we enjoy today start? Well, I think it was the vision of Bob Morris and Alan Brand. They contacted uh, some people around the state. I happened to be one of them. And uh, kind of put out the idea and said, what do you think? Do you think mm-hmm. this, this would go? And uh, I think that group said yes. We had a meeting at the Augusta Civic Center at the time of the, uh, the January show and uh, got that small group together, and it just gradually built uh, and very quickly started the Maine Motorsports Hall of Fame, which is certainly one of the great accomplishments of the MVRCA, mm. uh, which uh, I think we can take a lot of pride in. We, we talked about recognizing first the foundation builders of the sport of auto racing in Maine, and uh, I think we've done that very well. I think it was it took that perhaps to have the main sports hall of fame induct people from racing which they have that is such a nice way of saying we kicked your butt into doing this (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think what it's that bruce elder smoothness (laughs) i think uh probably what ralph cusack and dick mccabe might have been the first couple to go in the the main sports hall of fame Mm. and of course the first mainer to go into the new england auto racing hall of fame was homer drew and i got the opportunity to do his induction and ralph cusack so Mm. that was uh i think probably uh it was in 2002 that they uh they met in at the augusta civic center during uh what is now the uh, northeast motorsports expo um where do you see racing in 10 years well it's hard to say you and i have talked about that but uh, society is so different today i think back in my generation and and so on all the young guys wanted the v8 you know Mm. they were into that they they wanted to work on cars and uh uh, that was, and there were not so many other things to uh, take up people's or, or offer different options, maybe, mm. as there are today. So it was that combination of things. Uh, but uh, today we know that there's great competition for the entertainment dollar. Do you see racing around in, in 10 years on the short I, track level? I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I know you do too. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I'd be bored. It's just had had to be short track racing. That, that's for sure. And I hope mm. that it's going to have a resurgence. I think maybe they're going to have to find a way to lessen the cost. Mm. And I'm surprised there haven't been more serious efforts to do that because I think that's one of the things that's shortening the field of cars because they've become so expensive, even in entry level. Because mm-hmm. I talk to guys of what they're spending on an entry level car today. It is, to me, just way too much money. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people now with, um, you know, if you're a car person, you can either go racing or you can invest in a you know a street rod or you can invest in a classic car and, you know, and, and spend thousands of dollars on that. I mean, that's even if just you're a car person. We don't really have a car culture like we did, you know, 40, 50 years ago. And not to be all gloom and doom, once you're around long enough, you start to see the peaks and the valleys of something. You can kind of look at it from above. I've been a part of a couple of peaks just in the last 20, 25 years. And it's when you're not at that peak, when you're kind of down in the valley, you have to have the valleys to appreciate the peaks. And I think that we've been there the last couple of years. But there's something that's happened in the last, I would say, six 
eight to 12 months and it's not COVID. The way that racing has changed because of res- as a result of it, which I think has unified racers. But I do believe that we're on a bit of an upswing again. And I think you won't really see the results of this until 2023 or 2024. I'm very optimistic with ownership. Uh, A lot of the new owners that are coming into even just our region here in the northeast of the United States of America with racing. Uh, A lot of the people who are using their disposable income to race. And we've really gotten away from points racing the last couple of years 2020 was because of it was out of necessity i don't think that that model works anymore and, and clarify this for me the reason why we had point racing to begin with was to generate repeat business right um if you had 12 successful races or 15 successful races out of the year uh, and they're known as race meets if you look at who races the tours and there are six or seven that are there every single race you know and most of them only you can finish top 10 in points and miss half the season so do points really matter anymore i mean they do for traditionalists like us and for those who want to grasp the big championship ring and the prestige that goes along with that for the survival of the sport of the short track racing does the new model look different than it did 20 years ago I think it has to if it's going to survive. I don't yeah. think you can go back to 1963. Yeah. Yeah, I think the point used to be to one reason, certainly to keep the people coming back to that track. Mm. Um, I think today um, people seem to be willing to settle for fewer races. As I say, back when I raced, uh, Beach Ridge would, and, and Oxford Plains would have probably 26 to 28 races in the season. But how much extra did you have for an option out there you know well, there were because there were fewer uh tours available but there were open races like yeah. uh, at oxford for example and a few at beach ridge um probably uh a few at wiscasset once they got going mm-hmm. um did you ever race at wiscasset no 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 why not just out of the way or I, I guess it was a time thing uh yeah i'm sorry what what else did you race you raced at arundel you raced at beechridge did you race at oxford I, unity? no i raced at unity once because mm-hmm. i had a friend on the crew who had connections there mm-hmm. uh and we we ran very very good the one time we went up somebody found the picture of, of that uh they ran a heat a semi and a feature and i guess i won the semi and uh mm. somebody way years later had a picture that I never knew existed. Um, that's interesting, too, when that, that happens. But yeah. you know, And once at Star, because when I raced wow. at Arundel, some of the guys came up from Star and said, well, you should come down to Star. So I did mm. once. And that was tough because that was a quarter mile where you really had to have good brakes and you had to have lower gears, so that was a struggle. Yeah. Um, but uh, that was in the days of uh, Ollie Silver being uh, kind of the kingpin there yeah, he was, was the man it was worth the trip just to see all these silver in two different classes but uh i don't know back to the question it, it seems as we said society's so different today and people seem to want to do other things they seem to be content with fewer races in the mm. season because i talked to still talk to quite a few of the people go on a boat one weekend yeah go yeah. racing the next yeah. i think but you're going to catch more people your net's going to be wider if you're not going to put them in a traditional box 
You know, like if I had a race car and I had a family and I had three other different interests that, uh, you know, is equally as important to the family as as racing is Mm -hmm. uh, and I need to dedicate that much time to it. I can race my car six, seven, eight times out of the year, whatever, have as much fun, win some money, create some memories with the family and still go boating and still go to the dance uh, recital or whatever it is, you know, that, that the other you know person in your life really is, is passionate for, too. I think, I think you're exactly right. Mm-hmm. I think you see that with some of the competitors now. They may have a son or daughter who is mm-hmm. racing go-karts, mm-hmm. and that may conflict. We've seen that happen. And, and I can remember years ago, uh, I can't speak for everybody, but mm-hmm. most fathers who were racing would certainly not skip a, a night of racing Saturday night because some kid is racing a go-kart but that seems to be different today and mm-hmm. some of the other things you mentioned they may have a boat and uh, that's a short season too so yeah, yeah I, I think it's just different I just think uh, society's different and people just aren't perhaps as addicted as we were back in say the the 60s and 70s many more things to be addicted to there you go what makes a great race announcer well i think you can answer that as well as i can because you're doing a terrific job and i think uh i think it's doing your homework Mm. uh i think uh not only calling the race but being able to fill those gaps because you're familiar with the teams Mm-hmm. What's what's been going on, and uh, uh, that takes homework. Ninety-five five rules, what I use. Five percent is what's going to happen. Ninety-five percent is what you fill with it. Yeah, and keeping your opinion out of it. Uh, Thank you. You can have you can have no favorites. Yes, you're <laughs> if right. it even slightly looks like it. Uh, Every race car driver has a mom. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, you know treating people with respect and uh, and trying to. Uh, you know, to be fair and think of uh, how you'd want to be treated given a, a, a situation. You have to know the personality, too. There are certain people that you can get away with, you yep. know, uh, not necessarily just throwing them under the bus. But, for example, if somebody hits the wall and they have a for sale sign in their car, uh, there are certain people that you can make a, you know, you see that they're okay, and then you can make a lighthearted joke to, you know, yep. entertain the audience. There are some people you just don't even touch that Absolutely. with. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. What, like, uh, what makes a great race car driver? Well, I think a certain amount of it, the the very best ones are probably, it's, uh, it's like with certain athletes, it's almost like they're a natural. And I hate to name names. Well, I'll give you one example from the early days who, who we've lost now, Dick Walstenhume. My brother used to describe it, particularly when Dick was driving the Bombers, he'd say it's like Dick's wearing the car. It was just like, you know, that kind of a relationship. And he was a natural. Certainly Homer Drew was a natural. Mike Rose and this. And, and I, I, I could go on and on and on. That's always dangerous. But I think for some, <laughs> right. right, it is... It's much easier. It's just like anything else. You're into biking, mm. okay? There's a bike right over there. Yeah, yeah. and you, you probably are into that because you just that becomes almost like part of you, mm-hmm. you know. And I think it's that way. It's easier for some people to become a race car driver than others. I think, you know, some can go and and practice and practice and, and probably you know become very good. Some can almost out of the gate be good very quickly. Mm. And I think it's that way with various sports. 
not not just racing. So, but I think determination, being able to overcome setbacks, because there certainly are a lot of no matter how good anybody is, there are going to be setbacks. There's going to be nights that that it just all goes wrong, and being able to, uh, you know, stick with it. Mm. And uh, probably the greatest example of that is Ryan Newman after that horrendous wreck. Uh, mm. Everybody would have said, "I'm sure he's not going to get back in a car." But I know. thought that this would like the fact that he came back was awesome. The fact that he's coming back in 2021 amazes me. It, yeah. What does he have left to prove? I know it. You know, know what I mean? It. Like, he's won races. He's won a lot of the crown jewels. He's an yep. excellent race car driver. He, um, you know, certainly is not going to need for anything uh, financially anytime soon. Uh, but he just, he, you know, he's a racer's racer. Yep. He's five laps down, but you're not going to pass him. Yep. Hey, there's one story that I wanted to uh, I wanted to touch on that came from your track, uh, not announcing days, but your trackside days. And if you can debunk this, or at least tell me what happened because you were there. There's a rumor going around that Mike Rowe won a race without a windshield. But he started the race with a windshield and won with bloody hands. This seems like some Paul Bunyan stuff. Did did it really happen? (laughs) Yeah, it did. Uh, It was a twin 50 at Beach Ridge. It would have been back there in, I guess, probably the early 80s on the dirt track. Mm. Uh, Mike Rowe was driving a car that... Um, um, was this the Kudamash car? No. Uh, he, probably in the same night he drove a Kudamash modified. Oh, but, right. But the five car that they ran at Oxford... Mm, Butch th- Craig. Butch Craig no. was involved in that car. They came down for a twin 50 at Beach Ridge. Um, in the first 50, the car just shook apart. It wasn't built for the rough Beach Ridge track. Because it had raced at Oxford... Yeah, and Oxford obviously was was the third mile at that point. Yep, because it's still yep. okay paved. Yep. yep. Uh, so anyway, uh, they had about a twenty minute break to work on the cars. Unfortunately, because the five car had just shaken apart. Oddly enough, one of the things that the the windshield broke to to the inside and cut his right hand while he's racing. I don't. Yeah, I don't think anybody knew that until the right. race was over. I was interviewing him at the end of the second fifty, which he won, and asked him what happened and he said well bruce the car just shook apart <laughs> and among other things right. the windshield fell in and his hands all bent and we have a picture of right. that that was taken at trackside and uh yeah talk about overcoming um i think they must have gumped something because you had to have a windshield uh, well least, yeah <laughs> at least a half windshield i yeah. think was back in those days they'd let you get away with a lot of the bombers ran half windshields but this was a late model so yes, he yeah. uh, he was something else. So he, late models, uh, you know, for those who never watched the late model sportsman division, it's uh, I guess comparable to maybe a sports series today. Well, Second these, division, or the, this would have been like what we call a pro stock now. So, so they're still doing a ninety-five miles an hour into turn three. Yeah, you know, they're yeah. still if you put them on the radar gun, they're up around hundred miles an hour. Yeah, and he has no windshield, and he's driving on dirt. Yeah. With a poorly lit racetrack. How, actually, how well lit was the track back in the day? Well, not as good as today, mm. you know. Um, and the, the sand piles protected the light poles, which every now and then one would get you know mm. taken out. But, uh, yeah, they're probably a little slower on the dirt. But I remember the modifieds turning up there in the in the height in the 90s on on the dirt. I think uh, yeah. turning down, trying to think the track record, I think, was uh, 14... 
maybe 14.75 or something like that. Is that a super that. modified? That, those were the modifieds. Okay. Yeah. Super modified with like a Jeff Stevens or a Dr. Dirt. Yep. Um, yep. Even yep. faster, huh? Yeah. Wow. That's so. amazing. One more thing. Is there, uh, is there a current race car driver that reminds you of you? Wow. In racing style, in presentation, I have one that comes to mind. I'll let you get to I'll your answer first. I'll tell you a couple of idols that I had. David Pearson was an mm. idol of mine. I mean current drivers. Oh, current. Yeah. Um, Pearson's my goat, by the way. Yeah. He's my favorite Pearson. race car driver my of all time. My brother said that I reminded him of uh, Fireball Roberts for some reason. I never okay. saw anything. I mean, I know yeah. who he is yeah. and yeah. what so he I'm reaching way back. Yeah. But today... Uh, well, during my racing, because being tall, I couldn't fit in a, a lot of people's cars, but I always liked Bob Libby's cars because Bob was tall, and I said, you know, I, I could fit in that car. So I And I always liked Bob Libby's style. Now, that's reaching back, too, because uh, mm-hmm. that's been some time, obviously, ago. But, um, boy, I don't know. Today, I hadn't even thought about that. Um, Someone I, that you see on the racetrack that's like, yep, He's doing it right. I would have done the exact same thing. Well, some of the guys who are smooth, I think I tried to be smooth. I mm-hmm. don't know if I was as smooth. Um, I think it was nice to see Chris Smith come back, for example. I think he's one of the smoothest guys that uh, have been yeah. on, on Beach Ridge and uh, that the current younger people would recognize. And a lot of people were happy to see him come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he tries to do it right. I think he, he, he runs smooth. I mean, Ralph Cusack was like that. He was the ultimate smooth guy on, on Beach Ridge. So, but, um, uh, yeah, I was so. going to say Kurt Gary. Kurt Gary? Kurt Gary. Because Kurt Gary has never been a, even now where he wins everything, he's never been a flashy type of driver. He just no. goes out there. He's quiet about his business. He's a man of faith. He's very humble. And you can, I mean, has he won two Oxford 250s now or one? I don't know. He's won a bunch of races. Yeah. Point is, he's the same guy that he was when he was running 50. Yeah. Yeah. And, I have a lot of respect for him. Know, yeah. know, his, know his dad real well. And, mm. uh, uh, yeah, they uh, they certainly try to do it right. And they paid their dues. They, mm-hmm. they, uh, uh, they had a lot of years that they were not winning races, as you know. And uh, right. as you say, he's just the same, whether he... He wins uh, the 250 or whatever. Yeah, I have a lot of respect for, for him and his his uh, team. Well, Bruce, it's been a pleasure to uh, have you in the podcast. And, Thank uh, you. Yeah, more yeah. years to come. Well, hey, we're uh, thankful for every good uh, every good day, I'll tell you. And, right. uh, certainly enjoyed all the times that uh, we got to do races together. And that will do it for stage number two of my conversation with Bruce Elder. I want to thank Bruce, his wife Cindy, for all that they have done, not only for me as a, as a broadcaster and, and a, just a human being, but also for Maine Vintage Race Car Association and really for racing in the state of Maine. It was a blast. Next up, another in our Legend Series, which means another Maine Motorsports Hall of Famer. This time, it's Dale Chadbourne. Now, Wiscasset Speedway is known as one of the best facilities in the state of Maine today. It wasn't always that way. Matter of fact, it almost vanished. But thanks to the efforts of people like Dale Chadbourne, it didn't. But how close was it to going away? I, I took my mortgage money. I, I, I'm self-employed, so all through the month I save up money to pay my mortgage at the end of the month. I took that 
buy the insurance to save Wiscasset Raceway thing. That's how close it was. If that day hadn't worked, Dale probably would have been without a house. Dale Chadbourne next time on the Open Trailer Podcast.